Hello. Welcome to the Cartography Podcast. You know, well, I've had a pretty, pretty black pilling day today. It's I been, bet you have it's been. been pretty rough. To tell us about it. Tell us about what happened in your in your neighborhood where you live. It's uh, I can almost assure our listeners that it's much more exciting than what's going on where I live. <laughs> so I live just for context. I live outside of Seattle, and today I went into the city to go to this bagel shop that I normally get a bagel at, and it's in. Um, Capitol Hill, which is like the Bohemian district of of Seattle, and it's like right across the street from uh, the police station. The, the Bohemian like district right of they... an otherwise conservative and uh, a traditional city. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but but anyway, so this is where all the protesters were gathering, and like they 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 still have the street closed even now. So like I had to park the car a couple blocks away and then walk then walk on foot because it's like all roped off just to get into the, just to get into the bagel mm-hmm. shop. Um, and they, they actually stopped enforcing the the curfew. Uh, I think two nights ago was, was when they stopped. So, so now they have these barricades set up by the, like by the police station and there were protesters still there from last night or from early this morning. I mean, I was there at like eight o'clock, like 8am this morning. Mm-hmm. Um, so I go into the, <laughs> I go into the bagel shop. There's a sign, like suggesting that you wear a mask. I don't think it's mandatory, but it's mm-hmm. just suggesting. I never wear mm-hmm. one. I get my bagel. I come out, and then I see these people like protesting or whatever by the by the police station. Then I'm walking back to my car. I see people uh, with Black Lives Matter signs passing me by, presumably to go stand at the at the protest. Mm-hmm. Then I see more people walk by me with. Uh, rainbow flag colors and all of this lgbt mm-hmm. stuff everybody has masks on i mean oh wow they all have masks on yeah i just had this moment where i was thinking like what the fuck is going on like has everybody completely lost their minds other than me like I, i'm trying to live a normal life as much as i can like going going to get takeout from restaurants but it's just like every person around me it just just feels completely possessed by some sort of ideology that is completely observable yeah to regular people well you know you got to figure jay they um they have to be able to to you know wave some kind of a flag or or show some sort of a symbol uh because otherwise uh you know they would have to explain things with words and and make um kind of make well maybe not even if not arguments then you know kind of um, account for for what it is that they're even talking about or asking for, which I think would be, in a lot of ways, anathema to um, to a lot of what what we're seeing and and what the real sort of process here that's playing out, you know. Um, and we have uh, you and I have had a lot of spirited and and also just very kind of uh, I think interesting and and detailed discussion about kind of what all of this is and and how we understand it uh i have largely kind of at least on this podcast you know reserved comment uh on on a lot of these goings on these protests again i'm not even entirely sure that that's the the perfect term that i would want to use but I guess I would love to know uh, if you wouldn't mind kind of going first, you know, what your your overall take is on 
what exactly do you think this is? What exactly do you think is happening? And, uh, and then maybe I can respond to that. You know, fundamentally, I think it's, it, it originally, it originates with internationalism and the globalization of the U S economy. Like I think fundamentally that's what it all comes Mm -hmm. back to. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think viewing the U S as a, as a society or as combined communities at this point is just not descriptive of what the actual situation is like since industrialization, it seems to me like the United States is, is just, is, is an urban work camp. Like that's how I would describe urban cities in the United States at this point. So like to me, when you see all of these protesters, like, like I view them as elements of, the population that have been weaponized by global economic interests. And I think you see that perfectly clearly when you see corporations supporting this protest or revolution or whatever you want to call it. I mean, it it really solidifies the point when you see a company like Nike or Boeing or Disney encouraging people to protest. I mean, to me, there's no (laughs) other way to view it. (laughs) it. (laughs) There you go. There's your slogan. But like, to me, it's more like, it's like the people have gotten, they've been, they're being socially engineered by these companies tapping into like an inherent or a dormant racism that, that everybody has. (laughs) And, and, I, I definitely think that's the case. Oh, for sure. But, but they're using that to weaponize minority communities against other communities. But like fundamentally, though, I think it's more of like a worker rebellion within the within the work camp. Bingo. Because I mean, in rural communities, there's no there's no looting or or, or anything like that. Like it's purely isolated to the urban centers. Yeah, I mean, for for from for me, it seems like. The, the only reason for that is because that, you know, the people in the rural communities, first of all, they, they hardly have anything to loot. Uh, you know, they, they hardly, other than Walmart, in a lot of those places, I mean, I, I think a lot of people don't realize how globalized the uh, rural American economy, so to speak, is, and, and, and also just how much poorer it is. Uh, you know, it, it's this interesting juxtaposition where, like, the, the the urban poor are certainly, I mean, they're completely screwed over. They are completely disaffected. However, they have this strange physical proximity to unimaginable wealth. And I think in, in some ways that might be what is contributing to the, the more kind of emotional outrage that many of them are feeling like they can see the rich sort of walking around uh, or, and I mean, in many cases, I don't even know if these people are the rich quote unquote, I think we've uh, made it in, in, you know, you can, you can look rich these days without, without being rich at all. Uh, But I think you absolutely hit the nail on the head in the sense that, you know, this is being used by the very same entities who are benefiting from this disaffection and this, uh, you know, globalization process, the, these massive consumer corporations. Uh, and, and they have, 
essentially found a way to co-opt this outrage uh, and redirect it at, you know, the very people who are essentially most similar, you know, to, um, to, to the, the, the protesters, you know, I mean, the, the protesters have a lot more in common with even a guy like you, you know, or someone like me, uh, trying to go get a bagel than, you know, they do with the CEO of Amazon or, or whoever is responsible for, for these, you know, what is it? The hashtag black, uh, blackout, uh, whatever nonsense they're they're coming up with it's it's literally every i think it's actually almost it might be every single corporation in the fortune 100 has posted blackout or or, or something to, to this extent so like when there's this level of coordination behind it i mean it it has to benefit oh it's them. just yeah. and it and it obviously does like the more retail and small business stores that get crushed the longer this goes on, it drives more businesses out of business, um, destabilizes the labor force. I mean, to me, it's just we're, we're creating a country where we're ushering in now, uh, like the gig economy, where you get hourly contracted employees, they offload health care onto the government. Um, and I think what you're going to see next is demands for UBI or reparations or things like this. And they're just going to be consumer subsidies and wealth transfers to the upper class. I mean, that's, that's how these things are going to work, but it's funded all by destroying the middle class. So like if they, so they've chosen a scapegoat here and they're going to, they're going to, they're going to kill the scapegoat. And in doing so, the corporations are going to pass tons of laws and, and subsidies and get government contracts that are purely going to benefit them. 100%. 100%. I mean, that, that is, and that has been the model, um, you know, to one extent or another since corporations have existed. I mean, that, that is essentially almost the definition of what a corporation is, is, you know, one more thing that I wanted to add, no, please, Sorry, please, I, don't, I don't want to cut you off, but I want to add, um, the reason that they choose the racial issue is because that's what you could use to access the global market. So there's no love lost for for white people in these corporations because the European continent has already been conquered. So so the markets that are left are Asia, Africa, and South and Central America. Like those are the market opportunities that are left. That's so interesting. So, That's an interesting so point. So this is why they're that. filling, like when they say they need diversity and all of this, like they're doing it just to like, and they literally say that it's to make the company representative of the target consumer. Mm-hmm. Like that's actually the point. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So then, I mean, it's also important to understand then like why Joe Biden or Nancy Pelosi or none of these people say anything against um, like China for the the Wuhan virus and all of this. Like they purposefully don't do it because they know that the Chinese market is the goal. Like the, the ultimate goal, <laughs> the ultimate goal of the internationalists is to combine the Chinese market with the US market. Mm-hmm. That's the ultimate mm-hmm. goal. And I think once you view geopolitical interactions through that lens, it starts to make a lot more through sense. Through the lens of so like you literally, basically. Like, I mean, I, I would probably, I would imagine that if, you know, to whatever extent they think they can, they probably wouldn't want to stop at China either, right? I mean, uh, uh, I think they, as you point out, you know, Africa is is a huge 
I mean, China's certainly trying to tap, tap into Africa and, and God knows the U.S. has been for, for quite a few decades now. Yeah, and, and India mm-hmm. as well. I mean, they create these H-1B and L-1 visa programs purely to bring in cheap laborers to suppress the wages. And we've got emails of Steve Jobs, Bill Gates, and other tech CEOs coordinating this. And they got caught in an antitrust uh, violation over this. And they just, they, they settled out of court and paid a fine and were never prosecuted. And it goes on. Like this is still going on. Yeah. And, and I mean, you, you really don't even need to catch them in any of these kinds of, you know, compromising situations to even, I mean, it's just so like everything in the world is just following this model. This has been uh, the direction that the global political economy has been moving in essentially. I mean, I think you could. You could argue since the Industrial Revolution started, but in a very, very clear, measurable and coordinated way since World War II, you know, since the, the Bretton Woods system was was put in place. And, and it's completely out in the open unless you listen to what they say. So yeah. when you see them supporting protests or supporting open borders and stuff like this, this is all a distraction from what from what they're actually doing. I 100% agree. The only thing that I would kind of take pains to point out, and I just, I feel like this is just a, you know, while I'm 100% agree with you on the, the social engineering aspect of this, I do think it is worth noting that the outrage that a lot of these people experience, um, whether they're very well represented by these actual quote unquote protesters who are, you know, smashing bagel shops or whatever exactly is happening. Um, you know, I don't know who all of those people are. I, I'm sure that plenty of them, as we were saying earlier, are these, these, you know, these white college kids. I'm sure that plenty of them are, you know, agent provocateurs from, from God knows where, whether it's the police department or whether it's the, the, you know, whatever, whatever shady entities would be sending people like that to cause trouble and, and, and bring about these kinds of things. I absolutely do see that angle of it. The only thing that I would add is that it is all based on the co-opting of pretty justified outrage on the part of the, you know, American worker, uh, so to speak, which I don't even know if that term makes any sense anymore. It's it's really a wage slave is, is what we're talking about. Uh, I also think it's important to point out that the the race angle, you know, is is a 100 percent construct. It's a it's a I mean, first of all, even by the admission of the kind of postmodernist school itself, you know, the the race doesn't even exist. And yet somehow it's it's the the focal point of absolutely everything. (laughs) Uh, It's the, the fact of the matter is that. You know, while the urban poor uh, are largely, you know, racial and ethnic minorities, so to speak, you know, to whatever extent that's even a thing, uh, the vast majority of, you know, well, maybe not the vast majority anymore, because we have a, a for the first time in the last couple of decades, we actually have a, a, a majority urban and suburban population in the United States, but there are a lot of very, very poor, very, very screwed over rural white people in this country um, that have, I think you could argue, even less power and just, you know, at least as much uh, 
basis for outrage as, as the urban poor do. And, and I think that they're basically playing those groups off of each other. You know, they're playing, uh, they're just assigning teams to poor people and saying, you know, fuck those people like that. They're, they're the enemy. Um, and, and this is the kind of divide and conquer tactic that really goes back to time immemorial. I mean, this is, uh, you know, you can trace this back to the American Revolution in a very measurable way, which is which is a subject that I'm just absolutely fascinated with. If you look at the history of that, and we'll, we'll drop some some links in the the uh, show notes, but uh, you know, you really had a very kind of organic, like rural countryside uprising by uh, independent landowners. You know, small. Uh, basically subsistence farmers and communities of those people in places like New England and, and uh, in, in colonial America. And, you know, they were, they were essentially being robbed blind. You know, what we, we think of taxes as this kind of like ethereal concept, you know, we, we've like separated money from actual wealth in our minds, I think. But, you know, for them, it was very real. They, they paid tax in um, oftentimes in, in, uh, in produce, you know, that they, they were just like tax their, you know, grain. Uh, and so these people were re- rebelling like for their livelihoods. And then you had these, these oligarchs, these slaveholders and bankers like George Washington and Robert Morris and, you know, these uh, Patrick Henry and, and people like this, who uh, they were essentially the, the, the hashtag blackout Tuesdays, you know, of their day, they, they learned to speak the language of the poor and disaffected. They learned to parrot the words that they like to hear and, um, and, and, you know, raise the flag and, and that became the army, you know, and then they used those same people to, uh, to, to put down rebellions amongst themselves, you know, I mean, so it's just, this is a very tried and true, tactic you know i mean i think this would be a good place too to talk about like like what race actually is so so like my family is i'm I'm like half german and half italian so like the italian side of my family they came here like to so so like my grandparents came over from italy um but they like they weren't even considered white then like when they came 100 percent, yeah this, this is like a totally new thing that has just been invented to essentially just a denigrate. You can look at um, at a lot of these like 19th century. Uh, I mean, it's just really easy to Google these. these they would have like these charts. Uh, um, and it, 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 I mean, they came up with like race sciences, you know, uh, and, and part of this was things like phrenology, you know, where they would study the, uh, they just make up all this nonsense for what it meant, different, different patterns in the shape of people's skulls, you know, and, and just come up with these absurd <laughs> correlations and, and the types of temperaments that they would indicate. But anyway, you could kind of see these charts where they would classify racial hierarchies. And sure enough, you know, who's, who's it like towards the bottom? It's the Irish, you know, it's a, um, because to the, the Anglo-Saxon Americans at that time, the Irish were just the scum of the earth. You know, they, they were not considered white at all. And uh, interestingly enough, you know, in large part through uh, a kind of adopting some very like very racist cultural you know, norms, the Irish assimilated, you know, I mean, the Irish were some of the most, 
uh, prolific racists in both urban and rural environments. They were like massive slaveholders later in the, um, you know, leading up to the civil war era and, and all those kinds of things. And, and I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying that it was like some coordinated attempt, you know, on the part of the Irish to, to like be racist. And, and but I, I think that the point is you sort of, there is this process of assimilation that takes place over generations where, and it's part of globalization too, right? Like you mentioned, bringing in immigrant populations and, and it's it fueling the industrial economy, uh, you know, replacing the communities that had been there with these new people coming in. And, and just, you have this constant process of flux, constant process of transition and, you know, these transient populations moving through these cities. Um, every- you know, I think, I think another interesting point right here is that it's not surprising that you would have racial tensions in a heterogeneous society. There's absolutely nothing surprising about that. I mean, just like last week, there was an Amazon uh, internal memo that got leaked that they actually found that diversity uh, helps to prevent unionization. That's interesting. So like they, they know that increasing diversity benefits them. They know that. It I does. mean, that that's... I, I'm inclined to be kind of sympathetic. Like I, I definitely see where you're going with that. Uh, I think it's it's very relevant to point out that that most labor unions, you know, in the past, like in in the era of kind of labor union, you know, the, the early 20th century, late 19th century, like leading up to kind of when that all began to to break down. I guess in the 60s and 70s, uh, most labor unions definitely had this very kind of uh, ethnic, racial, religious, you know, basis to them. Uh, some of it pretty explicitly, especially in the earlier days, you know, they were essentially, they were community organizations. I mean, that's what they were. Um, and I think it absolutely stands to reason that, you know, people are going to congregate in communities, you know, where they actually have things in common. I mean, first of all, where they can speak the same language as, as one another, you know, where they have similar cultural practices. And so I, I definitely agree with you that uh, it's it's a mistake to just like kind of turn that whole idea into something negative. However, I I mean, I also think that there are a lot of reasons why, you know, unions, for instance, uh, and I mean, this is kind of a whole topic unto itself, really. Uh, I would love to kind of talk at a a different episode, just all all about the kind of economics and and hear your take on all these things. But um, you know, there are lots of reasons why labor unions are not really a thing anymore. And I guess the only other thing that I would add to kind of push back a little bit is as much as I, I kind of sympathize and in many ways long for the, the more kind of ethnic community aspect of, of life. um, I have always grown up as someone who, you know, I'm from New York originally. Uh, I'm, I've always lived in cities and to be completely honest with you, while I won't claim to, I mean, I'm, I'm probably as racist as anyone else, you know, I love a, love a good racist <laughs> joke and uh, all these things, but at the same time, I, I feel like I'm kind of, my consciousness is pretty comfortable with, with people of, of different, you know, ethnicities and different races and all these things, uh, at least to the extent that that's possible, you know, you know, it's just not surprising to me that you would get uh racial tension when you're forcibly trying to homogenize 
heterogeneous groups. Like, like that's a perfectly expected result. But they're also explicitly playing on it too. You know what I mean? They're directing people. It's, it's just such a bizarre thing that the champions of diversity are like, you know, they're all about fuck the white people. And like, I don't, I don't even know what (laughs) I feel like to even respond to the things that they're, that these corporations are telling people is kind of like, you know, missing the point in a way, because it's, it's not even meant to make any sense, you know? Well, well, my take on it now is you just have to completely reject the entire framing. So like if I'm filling out an application or something and it's like asking for my race, I check other every single time. Like I'm not, I'm just not playing the game because once they get you using their language, then it, then it's already over for you. Like good for you. I mean, that's, no that's way, brave. There's I, no I don't way know. you can improve your position then. Like, like I don't define myself as like a white person. Like yeah, I'm I don't either. Italian, I'm German, yeah. I'm American, I'm Christian. I mean, like this is how I actually view yeah. myself. Like this is just something that they're telling me that I am, and I just don't accept it at yeah, all. Yeah, a hundred percent. I mean, I, I I totally agree with you. It's it's one of those things, that, and I mean, it's like I, I wish that I could use a term like African American without you know coming off as some kind of like a politically correct type. You know, like I'm trying to correct people's language, but I just I feel like that's kind of that's like and i mean even even to them how disrespectful to call somebody who's like 25 or 50 percent black to just call that to just label them as african-american and then just say that that's what they are well why is that i mean I, what like what would you call them what about what about the other 50 percent of them or the other 75 percent of them like well and see then but that also gets into this whole idea of blood quantum you know as if like again in order to believe that you kind of have to like believe that that race is even like a thing you know and, and, and really, I, it just really kind of comes down to what a person's experience is, I think is, and, and, you know, there's, there is this kind of annoyingly subjective element to this where like, oh, you kind of how you identify, but in a way that really, I mean, look, especially in the absence of any kind of community, you know, which in the American context, black people have, you know, whether by choice or by force, you know, they, they've, they've probably managed to maintain the closest thing to a community of anybody in a lot of ways. Um, and so, I mean, I don't know, it, may, it might even may be a little bit more accurate to call them like West African Americans, you know, because the majority of, of people, the margin majority of black Americans come from West Africa, you know, like they're very noticeably different phenotypes than people from like East Africa or South Africa, you know, it's a, it's a very different ethnicity. Um, but you know, to call them black, to call people white, you know, to call, I mean, that's just, those are made up things, you know? I think it's largely just marketing at this point. Oh yeah. Like I, I, it's hard to view it any way other than, other than pure cynicism at this point to me, like it it really is. Which I think is, is intelligent. I mean, that that's because that is what's happened. And, and that's what makes it so it's like, you can't escape it. You can't escape the need to get like if you're going to exist in this context at all, you can't help but engage with this ridiculous language that they've constructed because this is the language that everyone speaks, you know, uh, the language of these of these races and of these, you know, it's you said it's like on every job application. It's like uh, I mean, you, you can you can certainly opt out to to a degree, but. Stuff like that is is a little bit challenging, 
you know, I mean, I, for instance, I, I wouldn't have the, I would totally just, you know, I put white on the job applications, you know, because to me, even the very fact that I feel, I, I feel like they just incinerate the application once, once you do that, I feel like it just immediately ends up in the garbage. once that it, box def- is it definitely <laughs> doesn't. I mean, it, you know, it, it probably depends on where you're applying, you know, and, and for what you're applying. Uh, certainly some of these larger corporations have, uh, you know, quote unquote, diversity quotas, and especially for certain positions. And, um, you know, I think the scary thing that you see now is you're seeing all of these people donating and all of these NGOs and organizations forming now. And we're going to see the results of, of all of this money entering the system for many years to come. Like this whole process now is, is I mean, it's not just beginning, but like I, I just tweeted this out a minute ago. Like to me, we this like the last month we've passed an inflection point on the curve. Like it's clearly going exponential. Right oh, now. yeah. I mean, this is we we have that's a really good way to put it. It's just this is like a, a huge push you know, uh, to accelerate the process that I think we've all been seeing play out pretty clearly in front of us, you know, for, for, I mean, anybody who has kind of had eyes to see has seen this process of globalization, urbanization, suburbanization, you know, the, the gig economy that you mentioned, which I, I mean, I don't, you know, to be honest with you, the, the kind of the gig economy thing in many ways represents, uh, a lot of opportunities, at least for some people who who kind of can use it the right way. I think it provides a little bit of flexibility uh, for for people to kind of escape these constructs in a lot of ways. You know, I'm not, um, and and part of that is is also me saying like I don't know if the uh, the sort of social contract of the century, the whole kind of you know you got your your job and you got your salary and, and this this whole thing that people are used to. I don't think that that was particularly liberating for people. I don't think that that was, um, you know, the, the epitome of, of kind of human culture by any means, but it's, it's pretty crazy to see one of the things that is so dangerous. It was so dangerous about that is like the extent to which people were made dependent upon it. And so now I mean, people are in this situation where, uh, uh, you know, they're losing these jobs and they have no idea what they're going to do. You know, exactly. Yeah. You know, I think it's really stressful, especially for our generation, because we grew up being taught that this is how it's supposed to be. Like this is, you're going to get a, a career job and you're going to work at one place your whole career and you're going to be able to buy a house and get property and feed your family. But the reality is that that is not going to happen for most people. Now. Yep. And, and if you want to do that, you're going to have to play by their rules in the globalized labor labor market. And even and, then, and, and it's like all the things that they're going to put. It's even then it's like a game of musical chairs. You know, you better hurry up. You better you you better try harder than everybody else, because that that pool of of jobs, you know, where you can have that kind of a lifestyle is rapidly shrinking. And, yeah, as you say, uh, it's fewer and fewer cities where you can even afford to do that, uh, fewer and fewer companies that can afford to, you know, support that kind of standard of living for their employees. Um, and of course they're, they're the biggest, you know, and, you know, just to go, just to go back to the protesters a little bit, um, this isn't at all to diminish the point of the protesters because they very clearly been left out of 
the economy. I mean, I don't even want to call it economic development or progress because the economy has not grown since 2008. The only thing that's happened is they've increased government spending since then mm-hmm. to drive up GDP. Which to just like, briefly clarify, like I think it's really important to point out when we say government spending, I mean, at least to the extent that it's not just, well, which I think it is largely just inflate. See, it's ultimately coming out of people's pockets is what I think is important to point out. Whether Well, it's worse than coming out of people's pockets because it's coming out of debt that their children are going to be responsible for. But it's also so this, is, it's, this is the reason why people aren't going to be able to retire. 100%, but it's also directly coming out of their pockets via purchasing power, right? Because I mean, even wh- whether they're taking the money from taxes to pay for these things, which seems increasingly rare. I mean, it seems like mostly they're just, you know, just generating money out of thin air. Uh, but even that well, well, a lot of it is a lot of it is printing, but then a lot of it is just debt issuance. So right. like a lot, most of the spending has been funded just by debt issuance that mostly China buys. But since since the coronavirus bailout, like that was that was printed. So so that will have a direct inflationary effect on the economy. But right, continually, like the 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 CPI number, the Consumer Price Index, mm-hmm. is how they calculate inflation. But the inflation metric itself is rigged. Mm-hmm. So I think mm-hmm. Eric Weinstein talked about this. He presented an alternative formula in the '90s and. They didn't choose his and they went with a more politically palatable one. Mm-hmm. And, and what it does is it systematically underestimates inflation. Mm-hmm. So they say there's no inflation basically every single year. And they actually like the Fed actually says that there's a problem with under with, with deflation. Yeah. They say that's actually a problem in the yeah. economy. Yeah. I mean, it's so a then problem. You, like, like if you yeah. what's happened, though, is they they've forced all of the money into the stock market, into assets. So, so what you have is like, like obviously there's inflation of, of regular goods, but that's somewhat offset by government subsidies like in, in agriculture and oil and stuff like that. So, so there's an argument to be made that those haven't actually inflated. But like what has inflated are the assets themselves. So like stock prices, um, uh, like the cost of real estate. Mm-hmm. So like things that we would have expected to have in our lives when we were younger are now inflated to the point that they're no longer accessible because of the inflation that's gone on. Well, and, and I think the thing to keep in mind there is, you know, it, it all trickles down to the poorest people is what it ultimately comes down to. The people with the least amount of disposable income are the ones who are most disproportionately affected by this just by the nature of the system as it exists. So whether they're losing purchasing power through the inflation of their currency, whether the you know, prices of the the assets that, because even if they don't own assets, they're still, I mean, it all comes out, it's all figured into the price of your rent. It's all figured into the price of everything. You know, the, the, the people who owe bills to debtors, you know, they're going to do whatever they can to get as much of their money back as they can. And the, the people with the least amount of money are ultimately the ones who end up paying. So it's, it's this in, incredibly kind of insidious, horribly paradoxical thing that, that you know, there's this, and I don't want to get into the whole left-right thing, but it, it's it's very kind of, it just seems to be correlated with this, this uh, kind of left-wing ideology, economic leftism that, you know, people have this concept in their mind. They idealize the idea of, of government spending, you know, of, of government programs. 
and they don't understand. You know, speaking, that speaking of that, people are speaking people. of that. I literally just saw today an article that said um, this. It was actually from 2018, but it was pointing out that in Minnesota, almost a hundred million dollars a year was uh, fraudulently stolen from um, from from a daycare program set up by the government by by Somali immigrants in Minnesota in Ilhan Omar's home state. So like they literally found that hundreds of millions of dollars was exiting Minnesota and going directly to Dubai and Somalia. So but this is a government program. <laughs> and then the same thing happened last week. Um, they haven't disclosed how much it was yet, but in Washington they found that unemployment was defrauded. They just said hundreds of millions last year. So, so like the idea that you can just create government programs and that's going to solve these problems is just not true. Oh, yeah. So like the one, the, the Minnesota example, just to give context of like how much $100 million is in relation to the size of the program. So like the program was decided, decided, designed to provide subsidies to uh, people that set up daycare operations. So like you would get a bonus amount from the, like you would get a subsidy from the government per kid that, that signed mm-hmm. up for your daycare. Mm-hmm. So they're basically just like making up fake kids and mm-hmm. saying that, like making up fake names and inflating their numbers. But it accounted for more than 50% of the total government program. <laughs> it's it's the, the bootlegger and the Baptist thing all, you know, in every, every version of these things, you know, that there's always this kind of well-meaning ideological wing, you know, who just, well, you know, how can anyone possibly have anything bad to say about daycare? You know, like, what are you, you don't like daycares? Like they're trying to help children, you know? Uh, and what's really happening is that you have created an incentive structure that the much more sophisticated and much less scrupulous players are going to be much better at using uh, to their ends than, you know, the people who who just want some some idea, you understand? This is really the the danger in my mind of, of ideology. Period. You know, it, it's uh, I, I am just as critical of the left wing ideologue as I am of the right wing ideologue. You know, the left winger romanticizes government as if it's like this inherently benevolent thing, you know, regardless of what's actually happening, and the right wing person does the same thing with corporations, you know, which, which aren't even like these kind of free market entities, the way that people see them in the first place, you know, they're they're like these quasi government conglomerates, you know, and they just have this idea that whatever corporations are doing, you know, is just like somehow better, you know? Um, Well, I think, (laughs) I think after this coronavirus bailout, we'll never hear anything about free market capitalism ever again. I think that's, yeah. that's the silver lining of the, of the coronavirus yeah, It's true. Like how, how could any Republican ever say anything about free market capitalism? Jay, I think you are underestimating people's propensity to just repeat <laughs> words. I mean, it's it. people, the things that I mean, you listen, saying, this is what, this is what like Glenn Beck and Charlie Kirk and all of these people at like the, the Republican corporate Republican sponsored, um, speakers repeat to to college kids and they have like college events and Turning Point USA and they do all of this stuff. And like, it's just purely nonsense. Oh, I mean, yeah. I, I mean, there, there may be, so, I, I don't know specifically what, you know, Glenn Beck talks about, but uh, I guess it's one thing if it were based in reality in any way, 
you know, like you, you could certainly, you could argue for that approach, but I don't think that most people, like it makes no sense in the context of what's happened. Like we are so far past that, uh, that this is just like a, this is a fundamental, it's practically a command economy that we're living in. I mean, and it has been for, for quite some time, especially since the, uh, since the, um, you know, the seventies with, with the, uh, when they got rid of the gold standard, you know? Yeah. You know, I think what has to happen is people have to like communities, especially communities that, that feel, um, like negatively affected right now. Like they need to have a moral center that comes together and says, how are we going to create economic incentives like within our community? You know, like taking money from like or demanding money from a government or from a corporation or like that's that's not going to solve any of the problems in in any of the communities. Yeah, uh, we're definitely going to have to do the uh, the permaculture episode pretty soon, I think, uh, because, you know, I this is kind of where we're getting to to the stuff that I really love to talk about, which is just sort of. Uh, how can we reject and just not even reject, just ignore all of this nonsense that this, these, these words, these, these ideologies that are being promoted and uh, what can I do? Like, what can I actually affect in my life, in my community? Uh, There's this wonderful quote from this guy named, um, I forget his first name. I think Frederic. Bastiat. He was this uh, French, uh, you know, kind of philosopher and, and political economist in the 1830s and 40s, I think. And he was uh, one of the voices that was really kind of, so, so I mean, like around that time, you could argue was the the very beginning of what you might call kind of modern socialism, you know, uh, being spoken about in in France in the wake of their, their, like their second revolution. And, uh, there were just a lot of, I mean, France was just this like massive industrial centralized economy, you know? So, uh, obviously for the, for all the same reasons that we're talking about in the U S context, you know, that they began having issues with like, how are you going to provide for, for all these people? And one of his big, one of Bastiat's big, um, my favorite quote of his that I've ever heard was, you know, in response to this socialist ideology of reforming everything, he said, you know, you who want to reform the entire world, why don't you just reform yourselves? And I mean, to me, that is just something that like, yeah, on the one hand, you can think of that as just this total dismissal of, you know, these people's grievances and everything. And it, I think that's just entirely missing the point. Like it's not about, what someone ought, you know, really ought to do for these people, like that they either are or they aren't, you know, the question is, what are you going to do? <laughs> yeah. That's basically uh, like Jordan Peterson's message too. Mm-hmm. I saw, a vi- I saw a video of him today. Looked like he was, he was, he was with a remote <laughs> control in his backyard with like a, like a remote control, toy car <laughs> he just looked completely disengaged like like he was out of his mind yeah, i believe that tweet was uh, suggesting that he had been uh, a victim of the mk ultra uh, <laughs> program, which is hilarious uh, I, I love the idea that like that's what jordan peterson has been all along 
Um, and that, that he's going to, I think I made the joke. He's going to, they're going to try and get him to assassinate Justin Trudeau. Which would be hilarious. Oh man. We need to lighten it up. Yeah. I feel like I'm ranting right now. No, I mean, I, you know, I, I feel like we're, we're basically on the same page here as far as this whole protest thing goes. Um, you know, anything to sort of to add? Oh, you know, I, I know where I was going to go with it. You know, I, I didn't, I wanted to make the point that I don't want to denigrate the protesters because it is true that they have been completely disenfranchised by the economic system. And like, there is a legitimate argument to make that people literally need universal basic income or some sort of uh, like monetary supplement or subsidy just to continue to pay <laughs> the interest on their debt. Oh, yeah. I mean, like we, it, it's very possible that we are at that oh, point. Oh, I, I think that I, I, I'm surprised we haven't reached that point already it, to the extent that people are going to remain dependent on this construct you know, to the extent that, I mean, it's so interesting to me that no one is even kind of, I mean, there's, there's whole industries that, that sub that consolidate debt. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Like like there's so many people that literally cannot pay the interest on their debt, that there's an industry that negotiates interest payments down. That whole thing (laughs) is like an interesting rabbit hole to go into in and of itself. You know, there's like this whole, um, there's this whole thing where you don't actually have to pay those people. Like legally speaking, at least this is kind of what I've, I don't know too much about this. Again, I'm not giving anyone any legal advice. Don't go doing anything. (laughs) Is that related to filing bankruptcy? What what it has to do with is the fact that uh, there is no legal basis for a third party entity with whom you have never contracted to claim that you owe them money. Oh boy, what are you going to tell me? I don't have to pay my federal Basically, taxes. Basically, what I'm telling you is, and, and I've never actually tried this in court, but my understanding, you know, NPR of all, th- I think it was like This American Life, did like this whole piece on this. And it was one of the most fascinating things I've ever heard. I'm sure people can look it up online. Maybe we'll link to it. But it's basically this this whole expose on how if you just go to court and you like, you know, there you, you, you challenge this claim that this bill that these people are saying, you know, you're delinquent, um, this collection agency, you basically say, well, okay, prove to me that I owe you money. Like, where's the bill? Where's the bill that says I owe you money? I owe, you know, Verizon wireless money. What, who are you? <laughs> like, why, why would you get to collect this? And then they basically like, they try to like coerce people into doing it. Like they try and kind of misdirect them and say that they don't, you know, don't uh, like, I'll ask the questions here, blah, blah, blah. But ultimately they have to dismiss the case because they have no legal basis to, to charge that money. Yeah. There's always like, like they'll ruin your credit score. Um, oh, sure. they'll do stuff like yeah. that. But if you're disenfranchised to the point where like you can't afford a house or you're like living with relatives, I mean, it, it doesn't matter at a, at a certain point. That's the know? other thing that people don't realize is like, you know, uh, how actually, what the actual process is for collecting money from someone. Like even if you get a judgment against someone saying that they owe you money, it's actually the burden is on you to, to collect it. So you have to, uh, essentially pay for that whole process um, if it if the person even has it you know what I mean like they could just be unemployed and then the, that's just that you know they they used to send people to debtors prisons but they don't they don't do that anymore um, so it's not possible for the like for the police to intervene in any of that right what what they can do is like they can get the sheriff to to serve you with you know documentation basically like uh, that you owe the money, you know, and I think to the extent that you have any assets, like if there's a judgment against you, 
if it gets that far, then they can like, they can put a lien on it or they can, you know, you can, I think you can even get it, end up getting evicted or something like that. There's also, there's things they can do, like you say, you know, to, to just like make things difficult. But again, the, the burden for arranging all of that is on the person who is owed money, you know, the person who gets this judgment. So it's, yeah, that's interesting. It's, it's ultimately, I mean, I think it make a long story short, it's a system which is like much of the other aspects of the legal system, you know, really designed for the people who have the, the means to, to operate within it, you know, the people of that, that kind of class. Uh, most people are just pretty much, you know, it's not, it's not really anything for them to, to do. Yeah. You know, another, another story I saw today was that in Minnesota, they were talking about, I, I don't think, I don't, it didn't, it wasn't clear whether they were actually going to do it or whether it was just like a city council woman proposing the idea or not, but they were talking about uh, potentially like just defunding the police mm-hmm. entirely. Mm-hmm. So I'm just curious as to what you think, like, what do you, what do you think would happen like if something like that actually was done in the United States. Yeah. You know, uh, Jay, I'm the kind of guy who's actually very sympathetic to that kind of talk. Uh, and, and that whole idea, uh, I'm extremely critical of, of just our whole quote unquote justice system in the United States in in a lot of different ways. But, uh, if, (laughs) if I had to predict how that's going to go, it's probably just going to turn into some kind of, a, I mean, they're just going to hire robots that are just going to shoot people down in the streets and arrest them for no reason. And, you know, I mean, uh, it's, it, it, all of this is, it's, it's a, it's exactly like the whole, you know, corporations talking about black lives matter thing. And it, it's, that's ultimately, I hate to sound just so incredibly cynical about it, but really at this point, I mean, <laughs> People people tell me I'm cynical all the time, but but the the response is that people aren't nearly cynical. Look enough. what they're like, doing. Like when you know that what what is it like two percent of the population are actual psychopaths and like four percent are sociopaths, sociopaths or yeah, something like at least that. according to that no. documentary by those Slovakian guys. Yeah, if, if you if you believe it, I, I, I it seems pretty <laughs> damn believable to me. If you want to know. That. But just knowing that there's people like that out there and knowing that there's high functioning people like that out there, like you have to understand that these are the types of strategies that are going to get employed. And it's not only, especially if there's a financial incentive to do it's it. It's not only that they're out there, Jay, it is that they are the influencers in like mass culture. You know, they have, I feel that the mass culture at this point is just like openly psychotic, you know, uh, it's. It, it, it is certainly not based in any kind of, you know, basic respect for humanity or, or the things that, you know, most human beings kind of seem to care about, uh, you know, each other. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's based in this just like total lack of regard for human life, human dignity, uh, everything to do with that, you know? You know, it would... It would be unfair to say, like that you couldn't improve, uh, like law and order in a society by, uh, like, e- like th- there's a way you could do it. I'm sure, even by removing the police entirely. Like, you can imagine other ways in which they mitigate, um, like, disturbances and nine one one. I could probably do a whole episode with you on it. 
<laughs> well, go on, go on. Well, I mean, I, I guess, you know, the, the, first of all, I think it's important to, to understand if you just like look at kind of uh, the best evidence that we have for archaeology or human history and, you know, without even getting into all the Graham Hancock stuff, uh, it just like let's assume that human beings have existed for approximately, you know, 100,000 years or however, however long. I think they're all the way back to 400. Okay, so let's say 400,000. I mean, quote unquote civilization, you know, which is really just a euphemism for like a centralized state uh, with a, a, an agricultural economy, even if you want to take it back to the city state, you know, let's just give it what, 15,000 years, like at most, as far as recorded history that we have going back to Egypt and Sumeria and all these, these kinds of things. Um, it's a drop in the bucket, you know, the, the part that was what we call civilization. Now, does that mean that, you know, uh, pre-civilized, so to speak, societies didn't have any kind of methodology for keeping order? And, and of course, I mean, it seems absurd to think that they wouldn't have some kind of structure, uh, but certainly they didn't have anything like this kind of formalized state authority, you know, because I can't imagine that they would have even had any basis for that. You know, I think uh, it's pretty clear just from everyone's day-to-day experience when you just kind of look at your interaction with other human beings that we're perfectly capable of coming up with pretty efficient ways to deal with one another, you know? Um, And I mean, every now and then that might turn into some kind of violence, you know, there, there, there's regrettable behavior. This, that there is always going to be, uh, people who, who show their ass, in other words, who, who behave poorly and inconsiderately in, in any variety of ways. And there have always been ways that people have dealt with those people. Uh, you know, before they had jails, they would just, they would either banish a person and if they wouldn't leave, they would kill them. I mean, and that was just a very simple way of dealing with the situation. Now, I mean, that might not exactly conform to the enlightenment idea of, you know, what what due process is supposed to be. But I mean, again, that that whole ideology, you know, in my mind is, is just completely a product of this culture of people who have been separated from from nature, you know, and who have been separated from physical reality. Uh, people like lawyers and planters of the, you know, 18th century who have this just very detached version of how, you know, I mean, they're just like kind of, uh, it's like all a matter of accounting, you know, so like I, I have this, you know, amount of wealth that we've exchanged and it's all at this very kind of high level where none of it is on the brink of survival, you know, whereas I think human beings in the state of nature uh, none of that makes any sense. You know, people live a fundamentally collective existence when they live in the state of nature. And so law enforcement, as we understand it in that context, it, it, it doesn't really make any sense. Uh, all of yes, that, it, that it feels like we briefly kind of like, like many, if I just could just like really re- quickly wrap up, like I, I do want to say that there are some pretty well-established precedents in, in recent history, like in the U.S., uh, probably most successfully in the U.S., of like pretty darn, you know, successful, pretty reasonable methods for what we do call law enforcement. And a big part of that used to be community policing. You know, there there used to be 
policies within police departments that would encourage police officers to live in the neighborhoods that they policed. Uh, now, not only are they not supposed to live in the neighborhoods, they purposely recruit police from different cities entirely. I've heard them talking about that for like a long time now, though. Isn't that like something they're trying to do is like hire people like like to make the police forces represent the communities more? I don't know. I, I don't I have not heard of any specific efforts to actually implement that. And I feel like at this point, with the level of militarization that we've seen take place since 9-11, especially, uh, you know, I, I mean, they're, they're essentially training community police. I mean, dude, I even see it here where I live, man. They, they have the little, these towns of like five, 6,000 people. You see cops rolling around in flak vests with AR-15. <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, I was I was more sympathetic to this argument prior to what's got on now. <laughs> I just tweeted out today that the militarization of the police is actually somewhat based. Like now, now that you see what's going on, because they literally need this stuff now, like to prevent to prevent the extreme violence and looting that's going on. Well, I mean, I think once you're at this point, you know, in this context, again, it's it's like uh, it's just. Which which part of the shit sandwich do you want to take a bite out of? You know what I mean. It, it, I, I never would have made this argument three weeks ago, but now now when you see the society collapse to this point, now it's like oh well, now I can I can kind of well, see. Well, the one thing why I'll they, say to that, I, need this I mean, the one thing, and I take your point. I mean, I can absolutely see how someone living in a city where these things are going on would feel that way. But this is going on at a national level, you know, uh, yeah. through a lot of it through this. Um, God, what was that? that whole program that uh, Eric Holder was, was talking about a few years ago where they're um, the whole thing where they confiscate property that they kind of argue is like associated with a crime. And then they just basically yeah, yeah, use yeah. it to fund, you know, <laughs> like they just, they buy up surplus DOD uh, equipment, you know, and this is like where they get all this stuff. Uh, but I mean, there's just, there's, I think to whatever extent you can make an argument for it in, in Seattle or New York or wherever, uh, there's just, there's no call for it in, in Randolph, Vermont. You know, it's just, it's absurd. I mean, well, do you know who introduced that bill originally in the nineties? Was it, I I can only guess who it was. I I was going to say, I know Joe (laughs) Biden was instrumental in the Patriot Act in the nineties. He was like one of the the major uh, drafters of that of that legislation that was proposed. By the way, this is another people that I think people should be aware of. Like most of these bills, uh, you know, these like landmark, uh, you know, bills that get passed in Congress, whether it's something like the Patriot Act or whether it's the Affordable Care Act, or, these things are typically drafted years in advance and like are kicked around Congress for a very long time such that, you know, by the time they actually become popular topics of discussion, they're like ready to go. I mean, it's, it, I, it's amazing that people don't seem to question like, I mean, maybe it's because people don't understand how much like kind of time and work it takes to, to create one of these massive documents. Um, you know, because, you know, I mean, I just assume they're all written by corporate law. And they are, but it like takes like years. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I do think that the, uh, I guess to, you know, get back to the, the whole law enforcement issue, I don't, 
you know, I think that there's definitely a, a an effective and, and humane and, and reasonable way that they could do it. And I think that there are a lot of reasons that go much deeper than just law enforcement or policing tactics themselves uh, that uh, I don't even know what to say about it anymore, frankly. Like, I just I feel like I just need to get the hell out of there. You know, I don't want to be anywhere near it. Um, yeah, you know, I think it's it, it really started to feel this week like we've passed a threshold where the urban communities are going to continue their decay and people that have capital are just going to exit urban communities. I mean, it's so fascinating that that we're thinking of it in these terms now, because I feel like the conversation for the past decade or so has been all about gentrification, you know, and how like really what's happening is that not only the poor, uh, the, the poor first are kind of being pushed out in a way, but really it's like the, the middle class, you know, people like us really, who are, who are these, uh, if we want to, as you mentioned earlier, if we want to remain economically competitive in this paradigm, we have to be willing to jump ship and move to where the rent is more affordable. Um, you know, in this very kind of delicate musical chairs game, you know, where it's like, you're trying to balance where, where is there like enough of a, of economic growth at this time balanced against like, you know, the, the rents haven't risen quite so much yet. Uh, I feel like back when I, when you and I first moved to Seattle, you know, it was like right there in that it, maybe it just kind of passed that sweet spot depending on, you know, but you could kind of like, you could kind of make it work for yourself. I mean, I felt like I, you know, having moved there from New York, I was pretty darn pleased with, with the situation I was in, um, aside from the crack vials that I was stepping on in my neighborhood. Cause there was a, you know, a total <laughs> war zone. Uh, but other than that, it was great. I mean, <laughs> I could, I could afford the rent, you know, <laughs> they, pe- people don't know this, but in Seattle and San Francisco now, they literally have, um, tiny house villages for homeless people in residential neighborhoods. So there'll be like 20 or 30 tiny houses, like in the middle of a residential block surrounded by like properties that were at least formerly valued for millions of dollars. Wow. Like that's how insane the situation is here. I mean, I don't know what, I don't know what those properties are worth now with that. uh, Right. Like with that village being there, but (laughs) But but every other house around them is literally worth millions of dollars, and it and it's not even that the houses are nice. I mean, this this is another thing that people who don't live in urban communities don't understand. Like, it will cost you like two million dollars for like a shithole house in an urban community. Oh, I mean, I I don't even I don't even know who in like our generation is even thinking about the idea of buying property. That seems like you know. No, the, the only people that I know who own property are people who live in my hometown in Pennsylvania, where things are much cheaper. Uh-huh. Yeah, where, where there's, I mean, even like that kind of, still that cult. I mean, I wonder even how, what the, um, the population of people, I'm sure you probably have like some friends from high school who hung around, but in a lot of those places, I mean, like I know it's a big topic of discussion in Vermont, especially like a lot of these, these sort of post-industrial towns uh, where all the, all the young people are leaving. You know, like there's, there's, there's hardly young people to speak of. Nobody's. Yeah. My, my hometown went from like in the last couple of decades, it went from like over a hundred thousand to down to like 70,000. Mm-hmm. And it was one of those communities that was absolutely destroyed by 
the opioid epidemic right. and heroin right. and drug addiction. Like just yesterday, actually, one of my friends from high school died of a heroin. Oh, and I'm sorry to hear that. That is just, God, that is one of the most tragic and largely unspoken. It's a huge thing up here too. Like in, uh, in Western New England specifically, uh, the, the, the I-91 corridor where I'm basically like, I mean, I live in a kind of nicer little, little town within this general region, but, uh, this, this whole area in a lot of ways is, is kind of a huge mess. I mean, it is just one of the most depressing kind of post-industrial landscapes in a lot of ways, um, which I realize is very contradictory to the way that I've portrayed Vermont in general. It's, it, it's a complicated place, man. I mean, like there are these, these, like I said, post-industrial towns where, you know, it's exactly that, you know, and yet it's also kind of integrated with this whole kind of backwoods culture, you know, in a way, and, and all of that is, is very kind of nearby and, and lots of farmers. And so it's a, it's a pretty eclectic mix, but there, there is a whole ton of the, um, the opioid addiction. Yeah. You know, to me, this is why a lot of like the, the racial politics is particularly disappointing oh, yeah. because like, these are the people that sh- like, it should be these disaffected communities that are working, working together. together. Yeah. Exactly. Like, like to, to protest all of this stuff. And I mean, like in that sense, the protest is completely justified, you know, economically mm-hmm. speaking at least. Yeah. And I mean, I, you know, I, the, the point is it's like they're doing it, you know what I mean? Like it's happening. And I, and I, it, none of it surprises me. I think if anything, I, I'm surprised that uh, a lot of this stuff has not been going on for much longer and, and more intensely. Um, you know, it's just that it's, it's so, damn disappointing like you say that it's being misdirected in this in this just perfectly textbook manner you know that that is uh it just works so damn well you know that i mean it's it's gotten to a point with me where i'm legitimately concerned about how fast it's accelerating i mean like what like, like what we just talked about like these groups working together and like protesting economic issues i mean like that like to me now that is completely gone like that's not even a plausible <laughs> that's not a plausible event in the future anymore like i think we're really entering the stage now where it's being corporatized and brought into and, and incorporated into the system in a very real way and we're going to start seeing the effects of this <laughs> to, to what i would just call essentially social engineering we're going to start seeing those effects in an increasing way in the society now oh 100 percent. and i mean i think we're look i i i think that the whole protest thing in general, I feel like, you know, what, what do people actually think that they're doing there? Uh, I, I feel like that whole idea has been extremely over-romanticized. Somehow people seem to have this belief that protests ended the Vietnam War, which I, I think is a, I mean, I don't believe that. I don't think there's a lot of evidence for that. You know, I, I think it's, it's all kind of a big part of it is part of this whole narrative that like the United States can't lose a war. You know, I don't think anybody wants to really admit that like, they just like literally were soundly defeated. Uh, and, and you know, that, that's just really the whole story there. Uh, but the, the protesting, like people out in the streets, you know, chanting, uh, I mean, who are you chanting to? Like, what exactly are you trying to do? And, and and, and, and this is just another version to me of, of how when people are put into these kind of mass 
you know, groups, they can just be so easily manipulated into behaving in ways that they just, they don't even know what they're doing. Well, it looks to me like a completely desperate situation where they're begging for scraps. hundred percent. That's honestly what hundred percent. I couldn't agree more. And if I was in that situation, I mean, I'd probably be doing the same thing. They don't know what else to do, you know? And that, that's what's so scary about this whole economic dependence thing. Um, and, and this is just, it's, it's just a totally systemic issue. And I think um, if I had to close on anything, it would be to agree with you that, uh, you know, I can't even understand how people are still trying to live in cities anymore. Like, I don't even understand. It just seems to me like it's, it's, it's time to go, man. The, the, the ship is sinking, you know, figure out what you're going to do. And, uh, I mean, if, if for, if for no other reason than just quality of life, you know, uh, I think people would, uh, would do much better to just sort of have a little bit more control over, over what happens to them. Uh, not to say that it's easy not to over romanticize it in any way. There are complexities with, with living in rural areas and, you know, um, but <laughs> people need to kind of start, I think, uh, being willing to, to make difficult choices, you know, the, and, and get out of this ideological frame of mind that tells you that you're, you're su- supposed to have some kind of an experience, you know, like you, you just have to stop listening to these stories and open your eyes and take a look at what's, what's going I mean, dude, the last episode we were recording, you know, the, the damn sirens interrupted the conversation, you know, because the, <laughs> the world is burning down around you. You know, people are losing their ever loving minds. Um, how yeah, could you know, they not? I, I started off the episode by saying it was a pretty black filling day for me, but like, you know, fundamentally, I think it's because I've had the realization that I just cannot stay here anymore. Like, it's just, it's not going to be a like, like a reasonable path forward for me in my life. No, it's no kind it's, of it's really at that point. And I think that a lot of people are, are going to realize that whether it's due to coronavirus or tech censorship or racial movements or whatever i mean it's just, even just rising getting, rent you know yeah yeah and economic issues i mean it's literally gotten to the point where it's becoming dangerous to to stay in urban communities yeah agreed well i think that that is uh is actually you know it may not be pleasant or easy for people to hear but i think that's actually a pretty hopeful message you know at least there's something that people can do i think you know i think it's important that people like hear reasonable people talking about it you know because i think a lot of what goes on is people pretending that things are going to get better or that there's really no evidence that that's going to happen. I mean, like, in fact, all of the evidence suggests otherwise that it's going to get much worse. Oh yeah. And, and there will be people who, who, uh, and I think, unfortunately, I hate to say it, you know, history seems to indicate it's that the majority of people are going to, uh, cling to whatever shred of that identity that they can until the absolute bitter end. You know, I think there was, once a conversation you and I were having offline, uh, and, and I, I mentioned this idea of like the um, the the sack of Rome, you know, by the barbarians. And there's this really famous painting that that Dan Carlin talks about in one of his uh, episodes. Shout out to Dan Carlin's Hardcore History, one of the greatest podcasts of all time, uh, where he it kind of explains this like, you know, this this paradise. Rome was this collapsing decaying empire you know very much like the united states it was uh hyper centralized to the point where like you know 
all of the mechanisms of the empire in the periphery were all geared towards bringing wealth into the metropole, which was Rome. Um, now, I mean, you know, our situation is not exactly the same, but I think it's pretty clear to see the, the kind of parallels of, of the global system that we're existing in. And well, yeah, I mean, replace the corporations or replace Rome with the corporations. And I think yeah. it's pretty. And I mean, Rome had a lot of like really weird, interesting quirks where they had they had like this system where where generals could just like independently go off and raise armies and start wars without, you know, just they could just go do that. Point being, though, like in this painting that he's describing, it's this scene where you have these like, you know, bearded, you know, horned helmet like barbarians that have just like showed up you know, in this, it's just kind of like this outburst of, of kind of righteous indignation. Like they have, they, this is the, been the bane of their existence. You know, this city for, for God knows how many hundreds of years, they've been kind of under the yoke of this empire. They finally bust down the gates and they just, you know, they destroy it. And you have running around in the midst of this, all of these like, perfumed you know romans with with like hairdos and and you know clean clothes and all of these luxuries and it's like the the whole tone of the painting is just like what is happening you know it, it like how could this happen to us and 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 i think that as much as i hate to say it the the kind of psychological aspect of of this whole culture it, you know, it leads to that. I mean, it, it, it puts people in this place of dependence, not only economically, but their very identity depends on a construct that they are are in every way misdirected from truly understanding. Uh, you know, people in the modern globalized economy in the U.S. and the developed world in general, they don't they don't know where anything comes from. You know, they don't know why things cost what they cost. They don't know how anything is put together, how anything works. And it's just like this, well, I'm sure things will kind of keep going as they are, right? I mean, how could they not, you know? And it's all focused on like what should happen, you know? It, it's just like this fundamentally infantilized consciousness of, you know, I exist at the pleasure of some institution, you know, I'm not even sure which one, uh, of course, this is all going to continue, you know, otherwise, what am I, you know, and then it just all boom. <laughs> and to, to bring it to bring it full circle now, you know, in the beginning, we talked about uh, woke capital. And in the first episode of the podcast, we talked about uh, Herbert Marcuse mm -hmm. and the idea of repressive desublimation. And I mean, what what's different about what's going on now as compared to Rome is that the corporations and capitalism are repressively desublimating the anxiety and stress and pressure that disenfranchised communities are feeling. And that is being incorporated back into capitalism. So, so that's what it means when you see Nike, Disney and Wells Fargo and Goldman Sachs with um, black lives matter and blackout mm -hmm, stuff. Mm -hmm. So like, it's just, it's hard to even wrap your mind around what it's actually going to look like. I mean, it's not going to be an external revolution. Like, like the structure of capitalism incorporates the revolution into itself. 
hundred percent. I mean, it would be like if the Roman elites walked around in Viking helmets in order to express their solidarity <laughs> with the barbarians. You know, uh, that's what that's what our modern painting is going to look like. Somebody should somebody should paint the that. absurdity <laughs> of the situation we're in is is just really kind of mind boggling. And um, I don't even, oh God. I mean, on the one hand, it's it's so fascinating for me to talk about all of this, but I, I feel like it's <laughs> like doing this with you is like taking me back into this dark place that I just <laughs> <laughs> we're never gonna release another dark. Episode like this. No, no, the ne- the next one needs to be about something. We, we got to talk about permaculture. That's what we've got to do. Okay, uh, thanks every thanks very much to everyone for uh, listening. We, uh, we hope that you guys continue to listen. And of course, uh, if you like what we're doing, please feel free to check out our Patreon page, uh, Cartography Podcast, of course, and uh, feel free to subscribe. We would uh, love to hear your, your feedback and uh, have, a, have an awesome day and stay safe. Bye.